0: Hello, and welcome to New Books in Performing Arts. My name is Andy Boyd. Today on the program, we have Joshua Bennett, author of the new book, Ode, as well as uh, many other books of poetry and uh, criticism. Joshua, thanks for coming on the show. Of course, Andy. Thanks for having me. To start off, could you give us a little bit of a sense of your background and kind of how you first became interested in poetry?
1: Yeah, sure. Um, So... My love for poetry, my critical interest in it, uh, the fact that I write it whenever I get the chance to, really began as a child uh, in of the black church. You know, I was raised in in the black Baptist church in New York, and you know, my dad was a deacon, and my mother ran vacation Bible school, and my sister was, you know, a star alto in the teen choir, and uh, I just remember. Hearing the sermons every Sunday and just being absolutely overwhelmed by the power of the language. Um, and even perhaps more so than that, the way I saw other people in the congregation react to it in real time, as well as describe it afterwards. So my mother would often say, when she heard a really good sermon, that's my word for the week. Uh, and the idea that language could be a kind of armor you carried around with you, I just thought was amazing. And I thought, well, how do I capture some of that in some way? So I would actually improvise sermons for about 40 minutes uh, when I would come home from church. And th- this is when I was, you know, four and five years old. Uh-huh. So I think long before I had the language of poetry and poetics, uh, I was engaged in the thing itself uh, in, in, a, in a at least fairly rigorous, rigorous way, I like to think.
0: Yeah, I think Baldwin started out as a child preacher, too. So you have a good uh, precedent there.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. The teenage preacher, James Baldwin, he was incredible.
0: What about sort of, you know, poetry qua poetry? Like did you did you have uh, you know, friends, family members who who read poetry or or how did that that kind of formal introduction to poetry happen?
1: Sure. So I mean my sister had Maya Angelou's phenomenal woman taped to the front of her bedroom door. So I mean, in that <laughs> sense, I was walking past poetry on the way to school every day. Um, I really wrote what I would consider sort of stories. Um and short poems fairly early as well. I mean, around the same time when I was four and five, I was writing those sorts of things. And my mom still has a, a bunch of those writings in a shoebox under her bed. So so that's pretty cool. But it wasn't until years later, maybe I want to say seventh grade in Miss McCormick's class, uh, we wrote poems in response to Aida, uh, and my classmates responded pretty well. So I think that was one of the first times where I thought, okay, maybe I'm on to something, and I can have a a career in the literary arts if, if I commit to the thing now. So yeah, I mean, it, it was really just a journey from there in terms of the dance between uh, passionate utterance, you know, uh, recitation on stage and the way language looked and lived on paper.
0: Yeah. I love that you still remember that exact teacher who was the one to kind of make that difference. It really just shows how much difference like one great teacher can make.
1: Oh my goodness! Are you kidding me? Yeah, there there's an entire constellation of teachers that made those kind of differences for me. I mean, Miss Quinn in, in second grade, who carried my report card around in her purse, Miss um, Riley <laughs> in sixth grade, who told me I was smart. I'll never forget this. She was like, "You're smart. You should be in this summer program <laughs> uh, at this local independent school called uh, Riverdale." Right, and I went over the summer, and it was part of how. I sort of practiced for the independent school entrance exam and eventually got a scholarship to go to a ride country day school. You know, where I went for high school. Miss um, Iandoli, who stopped me and my classmate Sonia in fourth grade and said, you two are good writers and you should look out for one another. I mean, I was nine years old <laughs> and wow. I'll, I'll, ne- I'll never forget that because those those small moments showed me that the stuff didn't just have a kind of value that could be measured in terms of grades. but that there are actual social worlds I could tap into through writing. That it was a way to make friends, uh, and a way to understand my relationship to the world that didn't just have to be private. If that makes sense.
0: Yeah, totally. Uh, so you grew up in New York.
1: Yes, indeed, born and raised.
0: Where Where in New York? Yeah, so I was born in the Bronx.
1: We lived there until I was about five years old. Um, I went to a school in Harlem, a school called the Modern School, which was a a predominantly black private school founded by Mildred Johnson, who's the niece of uh, James Weldon Johnson, who okay. wrote the Black National Anthem. And so the, the first national anthem I ever learned was actually Lift Every Voice and Sing. I didn't hear the
0: Star-Spangled Banner until later. It's a much <laughs> so, better poem. I mean, you know, you got to give it to
1: him. Uh, absolutely. No, yeah, no, they were on to something, you know, uh, Rosamond and, and, and James Weldon and Johnson. So, yeah, I mean, and then we moved to Yonkers, New York, when I was in kindergarten. And I lived there, you know, for much of the rest of my life, you know,
0: before college. Um, We mentioned before we started recording, you have a history of spoken word coming out next year. Uh, Could you talk a a bit about kind of how you fit yourself into that tradition?
1: Absolutely. Uh, So the first poetry slam I ever attended, and this memory has been so much more vivid lately, I think, In, in no small part because I have a son now, you know, August Galileo, he's five months old. But the first poetry slam I was ever in, uh, I was actually, I think, 13 years old at Yonkers Public Library. And I was doing homework with my mom. (laughs) And uh, there was a poetry slam happening in the library. And my mom said, you know, you should go get on stage. And I, I, you know, to this day, I, I still wrestle with stage fright. And she said, you know, you have to do it. You Have a gift to share with people, and I'd never done anything like that. I mean, I'd acted in plays and stuff like this in church, and I'd presented memory verses before the congregation, but I'd never been in a competitive poetry environment. Uh, and nonetheless, you know, I participated in the competition, and I got second place. And, the, and they still have the trophy, you know. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. So. so you
0: already had. Was this? You were you reciting your own poetry at this uh, at this first slam?
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was a poem I had memorized. It's called Hope and Love. <laughs> and uh i i got a
0: poetry slam title there it, I, look no
1: i refuse to denigrate the form that way it, oh it no not definitely... my intention at
0: all joshua <laughs> oh
1: okay i you know it's pretty bad oh, The poem was not good but i got second place i mean i imagine some of it was again the sort of impassioned proclamation you know from this small kid because everyone else was an adult i guess i should have mentioned that as well it was, uh-huh. it was a bunch of adults in the slam and, and i was this this small boy you know
0: Man, that's so great. I love that. That's one of the things I love about New York City libraries is that you know the idea that a library is this like hermetic, quiet space is like really right. not how we do it in New York. You know, well, not at
1: all. It comes I mean, entirely undone. You know, in my,
0: in my neighborhood, we have dance classes in our libraries. So that's
1: oh, amazing.
0: Yeah, yeah, it's cool. So um, then, how did you kind of like what? How did how, how did your relationship with spoken word evolve through that? After that.
1: Sure. So eventually, after that, uh, Black Ice, who some of you may know from a um, Deaf Poetry Jam, right on Broadway and also uh, on HBO, was invited to my high school, um, by by one of the two black teachers. This is an art teacher named Miss Powell, and I mean I don't know how familiar you are with Black Ice's work, but it's you know it's bombastic, it's powerful, and it kind of shook up you know, my my private school, two hours away from where I'd grown up. So I was sort of taken aback by that. And then Miss Powell also took us to see Deaf Poetry on Broadway as a field trip. And then my senior year, I saw uh, a Hurricane Katrina relief benefit at Sarah Lawrence College, hosted by the poet uh, Aja Monet. And there mm-hmm. I just saw some of the most incredible poets I'd ever seen in real life, right? And I think the, the big difference between that And what i had seen on Broadway is that a lot of these poets were my age. So I remember seeing Elizabeth Acevedo, for instance, perform, right? And we were both, uh, you know, high school students at that time. Also folks like Carlos Andres Gomez, right? And and of course, Aja performed as well. And it just absolutely transformed what I thought was possible within the world of poetry. I mean, these were teenagers, some of these folks getting up and talking about uh, imperialism right? Uh, and yeah. bourgeois society and, you know, the the iron fists of their parents, right? And how to get from under them. I mean, it was, and they were just cursing a lot too, you know. Which, which <laughs> it's
0: very exciting when you're a teenager.
1: Of course, of course. So I, I'll never forget. I went and I bought this uh, spiral mead notebook from the 99 cent store. And I, that weekend, I wrote my first uh, spoken word poem, which is called Talented Tenth. And using that poem, I entered the sort of a citywide youth national poetry slam, hosted by Urban Word NYC, and I earned a spot on the team. Um, and then the next year, I was on the Philadelphia slam team that won the international competition, Brave New Voices, and that was the the start of my career.
0: Amazing! That's great. Well, let's uh, let's hear a poem. Do you want to read a Dad poem? Yeah, sure. All right. And this so is a cool. new one. This isn't in the in the book, so this is very exciting for our listeners.
1: Yeah, yeah. This is a new one. It'll be in my uh, book that's forthcoming from Penguin, The Study of Human Life. And I wrote this um, in the early months of the the pandemic, or right after my, my wife and I found out we were having a child. Uh, the first time I, we tried to go to an ultrasound together, I was stopped at the door and I was told, you know, there's no visitors allowed. And it's such a strange moment for anyone. But, you know, as a, as a poet, I just tried to reach for whatever language I thought would change the situation. And I said, you know, I'm not a visitor on his father. And uh, the, the woman at the desk just looked at me and was like, dude, who cares? <laughs> you're you're a visitor in this case. You need to leave. And uh, I'll never forget, you know, my wife, Pam, had to bring me a, a printout uh, of our, our son's first ultrasound. So we got a bit more savvy for the second one. Uh, Pam snuck in a cell phone uh, into the hospital. Our radiologist conspired with us. And uh, I was able to see, you know, August's second ultrasound via FaceTime. And I actually didn't feel that far from him at all, right? I felt actually as if we were together elsewhere. So this is dad poem, ultrasound number two with a line from Gwendolyn Brooks. Months into the plague now, I am disallowed entry even into the waiting room with mom, escorted outside instead by men armed only with guns and bottles of hand sanitizer, their entire countenance, its own American metaphor. So the first time I see you in full force I am pacing maniacally up and down the block outside, facetiming the radiologist and your mother too, her arm angled like a chalice to help me see. We are dazzled by the sight of each bone in your feet, the pulsing black archipelago of your heart, your fists in front of your face like mine when I was only just born, 10 times as big as you are now. Your great-grandmother calls me Tyson the moment she sees this pose prefigures a boy built for conflict, her barbarous and metal little man. She leaves the world only months after we learn you are entering into it, and her mind the year before that. In the dementia's final days, she envisions herself as a girl of 17, running through fields of strawberries, unfettered as a kingfisher. I watch her stance and imagine her laughter echoing back across the ages, you, her youngest descendant born into freedom, our littlest burden lifter, world beater, avant-garde percussionist, swinging darkness into song.
0: Wow, thank you. That was great. Thank you. I wonder if I might ask, um, you know, so the, this, I, I, I'm not a not a poetry guy primarily, so forgive me if this question seems kind of ignorant, but so these poems are like, you know, on the page, meant to be read. Um, How do you feel like your experience in spoken word influences the way that you write, you know, poems on the page now?
1: Yeah, that's great. I think I write for sound as much as sense, Mm -hmm. right? Like I write all my poems to be recited aloud in no small part, Um, not just because that's how I was raised up, you know, but also because that's how I edit. So I edit on the road, right? Uh, I I try out the poems before they're sort of published manuscript by seeing how audiences react to them, you know? Uh, I see, you know, especially poems that are supposed to be funny, right? You try it out in Denver and Seattle and New York and LA, and if no one laughs, that needs to come out more than likely. (laughs) And so that's how I've edited the first two books, you know, is by traveling, and going to readings, and seeing what hits in different rooms, also just by reciting it out loud over and over, I think it gives me a very different sense of the texture of the poems. And so that's a practice that I've really fallen in love with over time, is taking out the poems uh, into the wild and seeing how they live.
0: Yeah, I'm a playwright, and that seems much more like how playwrights tend to revise, is you, you know, you do a reading, and you hear it out loud, and you see how it kind of hits off of an audience, and that tells you you know, more than you could ever find out by just reading your own play over and over again.
1: Yeah, it's a social endeavor, you know? It it really is a social poetics that I aspire toward. And I can think of no more enjoyable way to do it. I mean, I'm always laboring over the stuff when it's on my desk too. You know, I spend days, you know, sometimes years working on the poems. But to me, that's not entirely uh, separable, right? From the thing that I'm doing in public with an audience. You know, the audience is... Always also in my mind helping me revise and helping me come to the version of the poem that I think best communicates the music in my head.
0: Mm-hmm. I sh- I should also say, congratulations, Joshua, on being a father. <laughs> that's oh, amazing. Thank you. <laughs> thank you, Andrew. So this, this poem was is very explicitly kind of framed in coronavirus time. It's that's in the poem itself. H- have you found it difficult to write during this past year?
1: No actually, which is strange. Um, I mean, I wrote the book pretty much in its entirety, you know, during the the pandemic. Um, Some of the poems were older poems, but the second and third sections are entirely new. I mean, it's all new poetry. Um, And much of the first section is as well. Some of that is that, you know, I had uh, the great privilege of of being off from teaching uh, at at Dartmouth, you know, during much of the beginning of the pandemic. So and my wife was still working while she was pregnant. You know, she manages a, a lab at you know the local hospital, and so I was alone at home all day with with Apollo, uh, my dog, and that uh, it was great. You know, going with him for walks and you know running around and exercising and stuff like that. But I I I was drawn back to the page in a completely different way by that sense of quiet, and also by not being able to be out on the road anymore. I've, I've been touring since I was twenty. You know, every single year I've gone out and toured middle schools colleges uh, high schools universities not just in the in the states you know but in the UK and in South Africa so without being able to go out and experience that energy in the same way it took me to a completely different place in my mind to write these new poems so that that's really been an incredible experience and also I, I rewrote you know, this, this book of nonfiction in no small part, because the first version was, uh, was quite academic apparently. So I had to sort of go back and to find another pocket in my voice, you know, to try to bring this story to life.
0: Yeah. I wonder if you could talk about that experience of reading your poems in front of very different audiences. What do you feel like that has taught you about your poetry? You know, reading for a middle school in New York and then reading in South Africa, I would imagine the frame of reference would be, would be quite different.
1: Sure, I mean, in some ways, not. I mean, it's that's what's been pretty incredible is that the poems that have really hit in the states, they've really hit in uh in South Africa and in in England as well. I mean, some of that I think is just the beauty of black expressive culture. You yeah, know? is that it's not all just sort of the the references that come from growing up in New York or something, right? That that make a poem achieve liftoff. Like I think some of it is. How much I believe in what I'm saying when I'm up there, I think that's part of it, and I think some of it too is through a medium like YouTube. Apparently, people in South Africa have been watching those poems for a long time, which is something that I I would have never fathomed. You know, I had no sense of even how I got invited to this festival. Like the first time I went to South Africa was in 2011 for the Poetry Africa Festival, and one of my first thoughts was, "Well, how does how does anyone in South Africa know who I am? Like (laughs) by what?" means have you come across my poems i'm a local poet you know in philadelphia and new york and when i got there you know the people wanted to hear some of the youtube stuff but also the new stuff and i mean people were standing up yelling i feel like there was a tambourine involved on occasion i mean it was it was the most sort of electric poetry audience or one of them that i'd ever encountered before and so the yeah the audiences are quite different but my sense is that the through line is you have to get up and recite the poem like you care about it, right? Mm -hmm. And you have a very strong sense that there's not necessarily any good reason anyone out there should care about it. That's really helped me a great deal because I performed for audiences as young as, you know, a group of kindergartners in Florida. You know, I was invited to come out and read poetry for them. And I was shook, you know, the day before. How am I gonna do a set for for five-year-olds, right? but apparently five-year-olds have like brothers and sisters too, you know, and five-year-olds want to talk about being scared to think out loud and talk in front of people and share their writing. You know, that's a, that's a universal experience being a child, right? Any of us who are adults in the species, right? We were there once. And so having to perform for that, that wide range of audiences, I would like to think that it's, it's really helped hone my voice and help me get to the, the core of what I'm after, right? Which is a fundamentally human sentiment.
0: Yeah. You mentioned something about, you know, speaking your poetry like you really meant it. And uh, that really calls to mind Gwendolyn Brooks to me. Um, mm-hmm. I, I read her selected poems earlier this year. And, you know, as part of, sometimes when I read a book, I'll kind of track down audio of that, of that author, whether it's interviews or readings or whatever. And I was kind of floored by her poetry readings. I mean, she is mm-hmm. just such a, dynamic performer of her own work Um, and I I feel like people don't think of her as being like a spoken word poet in that kind of you know strict sense but she absolutely was a performer I I wonder and and you know obviously in your in your poem it says with a line from Gwendolyn Brooks I I, could you talk a little bit about what Gwendolyn Brooks has meant to you as a poet
1: oh a great deal I mean, We Real Cool is one of the first poems you memorized.
0: <laughs> you know, <laughs> Absolutely, a,
1: yeah. Yeah, yeah, you know, as, as a child. And so that that had a tremendous effect on me. But also, again, reading her sort of like collected works from Third World Press, like sitting with that book, Blacks, right? And reading not just her poetry, but her fiction, right? Her novella, Maud Martha. I've taught that book so many times. Uh, and teaching her poetry, like Kitchenette Building, The Preacher Ruminates Behind the Sermon. I mean, I was in training to become a minister, uh, before I was an academic, and I guess we could talk about that now or another time. But reading that, that work, I mean, it had such a tremendous impact on me. And because you mentioned spoken word already, specifically rather in a, in a Gwendolyn Brooks context, I should mention that she's in you know the book, In Spoken Word, of Cultural History, in part because in my interview with Patricia Smith for the book, she describes actually being at a poetry slam in Chicago with Gwendolyn Brooks as a younger writer. And thinking about that scene, right, is so incredible because that's really the central ethos of the book, that when we look at the kind of great Black poets of the 20th and 21st century, the lines become quite blurred between something like spoken word poetry um, and a poetry that's ostensibly written always for the page, right? There's always this idea that the work should sound beautiful when it's given to the air. And that's also a kind of social and political responsibility, right? That Every poem, um, at least the good ones, are an occasion for gathering, you know, mm-hmm. for people to come around and hear what the griot has to say. And so Gwendolyn Brooks, for me, is is an incredible example of, of the kind of social and political responsibility um, that poets worth their salt, I think, hold uh, and take seriously.
0: Yeah, great. Um, do you want to read uh, the next poem? Sure. Uh, so one of
1: the spaces I've missed most during the the pandemic, um, especially at the the beginning, you know, those those first few months was uh, the barbershop. So this is Barber Song, and uh, I'll dedicate this reading of it to uh, both Maurice, my college barber, and Eli, uh, my barber back in New York, because uh, they were two of the first barbers I'd ever met that were true wordsmiths. And Maurice in particular had a thesaurus in the drawer uh, right next to his club. So this is Barber Song. Postmodern blackness blacksmith. Straight razor reshaping self-esteem. You dream in geometries unreachable by any other means. Speak and entire phrases abandon standard American etymology hence. You liberate waves from the sea. Cornrows from the cornfield. Reclaim fade so I now hear the word and imagine only abundance. Caesar never meant anything to me but a cut so close you could see the shimmer of a man's thinking. You are how we first learned to bend language built to unmake us, accept implausible risk, some much older man, shaver in hand like a baton full of wasp gossip, asking with the grain or against, and the question feels damn near existential, given this is the only place we can live in such thoughtless proximity to another person's open hands, be held by the face, ask outright to be made glamorous, shaped by your polymathic brilliance, you bi-weekly psychoanalyst, first stop before funeral, before wedding and block party alike, you soothsayer, cooing children to calm as they sit in the chair for the first time, as still a storm as one might reasonably expect, you ethicist, defending hairlines at all cost. your vigilance keeping online and otherwise slander at bay, philosopher king, thesaurus in the drawer, dominoes and scotch and Barbasol adorning your countertop right above the chorus line of clippers swaying to the clamor of checkmates and offhand insults now filling the shop, each moving as if the unfettered locks of some great metal monster some faraway watcher and you guardian of it all clean as a pope
0: fantastic thank you Joshua that was great thank you I, I feel like that last line clean as a pope is is such it feels like a kind of typical Joshua Bennett line, if I may, in that it's sort of this moment of of kind of liftoff at the end of the poem. Is that something you kind of consciously strive for?
1: Oh wow, that's such a generous reading of uh, of my work. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it it has to achieve a certain. uh, I mean, to crib a line from Frost, right? It has to achieve a certain airspeed, right? The poem, and I always want that that sense of liftoff at the end. I mean, you know, as a theater person, that's how you end a number right? Or or a given act, you know, you have to sort of dismount powerfully and stick the landing. So I'm always going for that uh, at the endings. I want that kind of theatrical feeling. So you can have the sense, even if you're reading the thing alone in your house, you know, that you you saw me read it in person, you know, and you had that feeling of the reader on stage communicating it to you with all the urgency that, that poetry demands, I think.
0: Yeah my my barber actually recently passed away he was this like 80 oh something year old italian man and i wow. think one of the things that i that i loved about going to get my haircut uh from him is that he could be very like tender and careful uh while also being kind of unimpeachably masculine you know what i mean it's like a place that you can go and like you can g- the goal is like make me look good which yeah. is sort of like not something that, that men are supposed to you know ask from another man, and yet because it's the barbershop, it's sort of like this, this sort of, uh, I don't know, space where that's allowed. Is that part of what you like about the barbershop?
1: A <laughs> hundred percent. So much of what I'm after in that poem is the very fact that, as you describe, this language of tenderness is largely impermissible elsewhere, right? For mm-hmm. so many boys and men. The whole point of going to the barbershop is to be made beautiful. And you get to make all sort of micro decisions, right? So in the in the black barbershops I grew up in, there were actual charts, right? With sort of thirty or forty examples of different <laughs> haircuts, right? So you could say, let me get a number 29, right? <laughs> or something yeah. like that. Or you could ask, you know, for a fade, for a Caesar, for a tapered fade, for an Afro, right? And you you were learning all this different language for the way you wanted your hair and your face to be adorned, right? I had fades all throughout uh, my childhood. And then I eventually got a Caesar. And then when I got older, I realized I had no sense of what my hair really looked like grown out. You know, I realized this when I was 27 years old. So I started asking my barbers to do something completely different. And that was a complicated moment as well. You know, where there's what, what, you want to switch it up? you want to have all this hair on your head? And that's when I started growing out my beard as well. So Mm -hmm. yeah, hair is, you know, it's a a fraught battleground. And it's it's such a unique topic, I think, especially for those of us who are taught that it's not something that you should even talk about or care about that much, right? But of course, we care about our hair.
0: Yeah. I feel like that's a topic that like mm-hmm. in in the, in poetry by black women, that's something that has been you know discussed for a long time. But I, I I don't know if I've ever seen a poem by a by a black man about the sort of social significance of of his hair.
1: Yeah, Terrence Hayes has a beautiful poem called Barbarism <laughs> uh, in How mm-hmm. to be Drawn. But yeah, I mean, you're addressing a, a complicated question too, just about sort of the about black social space and black poetry. I mean, Major Jackson has this book, Hoops, uh, that that's largely about sort of basketball and black social space and in Philadelphia. And I mean, that's the kind of lineage I'm trying to pick up on in my work. You know, I'm really interested in the the black quotidian, the black everyday. Mm-hmm. I write about racism, you know, sometimes, but mostly what I'm really after is sort of like how do black people interact with one another when that's not what they're thinking about. Right. right when they're sitting on their grandmother's couch as children or when they're in a restaurant or the 99 cent store or at the park or creating a painting, right? Or coming up with, a, I don't know, dreams for their family while they they walk through the woods. I mean, there are all sorts of visions of Black sociality that can be presented without this kind of ever-threatening specter of, of violence looming over it. Mm-hmm. That's that's part of what I'm after in the work, you know, is that tenderness that gentleness and that that beauty that persists in a, in black life worlds that have survived so much.
0: Yeah, I wonder how spending time in barbershops has influenced your poetry. I mean, I'm thinking of in graduate school, I took a, a class where we read all of August Wilson's plays. Mm. And one of the things that he said was that the barbershop is what taught him dialogue. Mm-hmm. You know, like maybe Ibsen taught him a little bit of structure, but the dialogue came straight from the barbershop. Did, did the way that language was artfully used in that context shape your poetry? Oh, 100%.
1: You know, that's where you learn the rules of argument in a barbershop, right?
0: Because, uh-huh. and there's also
1: this kind of beautiful uh, Greek chorus that's there, right? <laughs> like there, there's always kind of a, a mix of new customers and people that are always there. And there are people in the barbershop that aren't there to get their hair cut as well mm-hmm. right like there were the people who were there to play chess and there are people who at least when i was younger would come in to sell bootleg dvds and cds right um, and then there are people who are there to watch the game right and just sort of spend time people who are neighborhood fixtures so i think it it taught me one how to pay attention to the sights and sounds of the everyday but also to really think seriously again about black multiplicity that there were always so many different kinds of people in the barber shop, right? Mm-hmm. And one thing we had in common was that we were all black. It wasn't even always uh, all black men and boys, right? Like I've been in barber shops with, you know, uh, oftentimes there were women that were barbers. Um, especially when I was in Philadelphia. Um, mm-hmm. so we, we had, you know, our our blackness in common, but there were so many other points of divergence that I thought were were so incredible. Um, and yet yeah, it helped me just to think about. Again, sort of beauty and glamour and also patience because there were times you get to the shopper and this is before you could just make an appointment on your phone. You might get to the shop and have to wait for an hour, you know, mm-hmm. hour and a half, depending on where you get, when you get there and who's in front of you online. And that teaches you a great lesson yeah, as a 12 as a year old, you know, that, that things you care about are, are hard won you know, sometimes. Yeah, and right. you have to think about other people and what they need. Because as much as you want or need your cut, so do the four or five people in front of you.
0: You know, mm-hmm.
1: and you're no more important than they are in that moment.
0: Yeah, you got to yeah. wait your turn. That's an important yeah. lesson. <laughs> That's it. Yeah. You also one of the things I love about the poem too is you talk about the the barbershop being the first stop before a funeral or before a wedding or before a party. So it's it's a space that kind of marks uh, the the kind of transition moments in life. Um, and maybe that's part of what you're getting at with clean as a pope—that it's almost a religious type of thing, you know. I remember when I got married, I got a really nice haircut, you know, the week before, and that was like part of the whole process.
1: Oh, 100 percent. I mean, I remember sort of a day be- the day before I proposed to my wife. Um, I told my barber. I mean, my barber was one of the first people on earth who knew I was going to propose, Because right? I said, <laughs> "Look, like to- I've got the ring. You know, this is what it looks like. I had a picture on my phone. <laughs> this is the yeah. ring." Um, I need you to summon whatever you know, <laughs> whatever powers may be lying latent. This needs to be the best haircut, right? <laughs> that you have ever participated in in your life that you have ever crafted. And uh, he did a great job. You know, my yeah. my photos from that night are are crisp. You know, they're they're up on my Instagram now uh, with the caption "She said yes." And then I think there's like a ring emoji and some some uh praise hands and. uh, yeah, I mean, it's the it's the space you go where you have something important in your life coming up at, and when you know you need to show up as your best self. You know, you have to go to the barbershop for that. Before you have a big job interview, you go to the barbershop, a big date, um, or before you propose, right? Or on your birthday. And there are some barbers that'll comp you on your birthday. You know, they'll say it's your birthday. This cut is for free, you know? You're trying to go buy a house and you need to, you know, present a certain way here you go man and good luck you know so
0: i, I imagine that might be a difficult kind of conversation to to navigate too because you don't want to imply that they ever don't bring their best work to the table but like on this day especially though you really can't miss
1: yeah i, I mean and maybe this has been a kind of problematic aspect in my exchanges with barbers In my, my barbers know i'll be like oh yeah this was this was solid man you Know and when they knock it out the park, I'm like, oh, you knocked this out the park, Eli. Uh-huh. Thank you, you know. And I'm really <laughs> thankful. I've, I've had uh, I've been incredibly fortunate, I've never had a, a consistently bad barber in my life, and I'll actually say for the past 10 years, I've only had elite barbers. So, mm-hmm. you know, shout out to Maurice, Eli, Lewis, and Fryant because they're an incredible uh, constellation, you know, of barbers. But I'll never forget one time in high school, I mean, I had a barber who cut off the bottom half of my right sideburn. And it was one of the most embarrassing weeks at school um, that I've ever, (laughs) that I've ever had. It was really bad. I was tempted to try to use a marker or something to like, (laughs) you know, but I knew that would make it worse. And so, yeah, I I had to just bear the shame for a couple of days until it grew back.
0: One thing about this poem that I I kind of, I'm sure there's a smarter way to phrase this, but it seems like the poem is kind of talking about something that it's also doing, which is like paying really close attention to these quotidian aspects of black life. Like you were saying, like that's something that a barber does. And it's also something that you do as a poet. Was that kind of like uh, a sort of uh, conscious thing you were trying to do in this poem to make it one of those poems that's sneakily also about poetry?
1: Mm, That's fantastic. It's such a beautiful read on it. I think so. I hope so. I mean, I think even in calling it Barber Song and not like Ode to the Barbershop, I think there's, there's something I'm trying to do where I'm trying to help you imagine it as something a, a barber is also, might also sing, you know? Mm-hmm. Some of those might also be modes of self-description as the the straight razor reshaping self-esteem, right? The, the barbers that I, I have known and grown up with, they have tremendous pride in their craft. Mm-hmm. They understand that a haircut, you know, and here I'm actually quoting the, you know, the Ice Cube movie, right. like a, a, a haircut can make a, a person feel differently about themselves, right? it can completely transform the way you think about your place in the world or something. And so, yeah, I think I am trying to enact in the language of the poem, the thing I'm describing, you know, which is intense attention to, to beauty, right? But also the, the vulnerability of that moment, right? The trust of of letting someone cut your hair. Right? These are sharp metal instruments. Yeah. Right? You're saying I, I trust you with them, you know. I trust you to 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 make me beautiful and to prepare me for the world outside.
0: I think that's one of the things. I don't know if you know the musical Sweeney Todd, but that's one of the things that makes that musical so terrifying is that it's such a vulnerable thing to do to kind of put your put your your throat in the straight razor of a uh, of, of of a total, total stranger sometimes. So. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Do you want to read Ode to the Plastic on Your Grandmother's Couch? Yeah, 100%. All right.
1: Uh, One of my favorite uh, poems in the book, and I mean, as I said in that first poem, you know, my my grandmother passed at the top of the the pandemic, so this is for Mm. my grandmother. Ode to the Plastic on Your Grandmother's Couch, which could almost be said to glisten or glow like the weaponry in heaven, frictionless as if slickened with some Pentecostal auntie's last bottle of anointing oil, an ark of no covenant one might easily name, apart from the promise to preserve all small and distinctly mortal forms of loveliness that any elder African-American woman makes the day they see 60. Consider the garden of collards and heirloom tomatoes only, her long single braid streaked with gray like a gathering of weather, the child popped in church for not sitting still. How even that, they say, can become an omen if you aren't careful. If you don't act like you know, all Newton's laws don't apply to us the same exactly. Ain't no equal and opposite reaction to the everyday brawl Blackness in America is. No body so beloved it cannot be destroyed. So we hold on to what we cannot hold, adorn it in Vaseline or gold or polyurethane wrapping. Call it ours and don't mean owned. Call it just like new, mean, alive. Mm.
0: Yeah, thank you, Joshua. That's great. No, um, I'd love to, to talk about, so this is the first of the poems that you've read that has that word ode in it, which is spelled O-W-E-D, like the title of this book. But obviously that you know uh, is, is a homophone with O-D-E, the poetic form. Um, could you talk a little bit about that sort of I don't want to call it a pun that feels, you know, kind of uh, minimizing, but, but that, that homophone there, what, what do you, what are you trying to get at with that?
1: Yeah, sure. Um, I mean, so the, the idea for the odes, you know, O-W-E-D, I mean, they, they first came to me when I was at Cave Canem, which is a writer's retreat for black poets. And I'd put my mattress on the floor because I couldn't sleep with it in the frame. It just, it like hurt my back. So I was sleeping on the mattress on the floor, and at Canem, you have to write a new poem every day, and so I was sitting there thinking, racking my brain, like, all right, I'd already gotten rejected from Canem five times by the way before I got in, and so I was sitting there thinking, all right, I have to sort of, I don't know, in some sense, like prove that I belong here, and this is a first impression, right? This is the the first thing anyone in my cohort, because we're we're split into sort of smaller writing groups, so I was in group C, and. I thought if it's my first impression, I want to try to knock it out of the park. And I'm going to write a poem about uh, my big sister, Latoya, and how she taught me to fight. So the the first ode uh, that I wrote, and also the first ode in this book, is ode to pedagogy. uh, And it's all about my big sister. And I think after that, the concept of the ode, O-W-E-D, right, in no small part, because my sense was that I was actually paying back a debt to her. Uh, by writing the poem, it was saying, you've given me so much. And this poem is a a gesture towards me trying to pay back this debt I can never really repay, right? And then over the course of the next, you know, two and three years, the odes just began to proliferate, right? And they turned into this collection, which was largely not just about the sort of uh, monetary reparations that are owed to Black people, but really how we might think about reparation as a certain kind of social practice, right? What do we owe to each other? Um, and how do we repair the bonds that have been broken between us, right? And what is perhaps the role of sort of Black expressive culture in that process in this country, but also across the world? So that's where the odes came from.
0: Your odes remind me a bit of Pablo Neruda's odes, like, Ode mm. to My Socks. Um, yeah. Are you at all influenced by, by his odes or by kind of his idea of, of an impure poetry?
1: Sure. And the sort of praise of the everyday, right? Um, because that also is one of the inspirations, Naruda's odes, I mean, for a catalogue of unabashed gratitude by Ross Gay. And I think that's another book that really influenced me in no small part because, you know, my first book is is kind of sad, right? I mean, it's in the title, The Sobbing School, right? Like that that book is largely about grief and persistence, to be sure, but not necessarily this kind of ongoing emphasis on celebration which is what I think, Ode, what really sets Ode apart, um, not just in my body of work, but hopefully hopefully in the field, right? I mean, I think we are coming into a moment where maybe that kind of impulse is more widespread, but I think, I mean, something about the past nine years, I think in particular, I mean, I'm thinking about Trayvon Martin being killed, you know, mm-hmm. um, and I'm thinking about Mike Brown, you know, in 2014. And the effect that that had on, on black life and the way it's understood and articulated in this country and how that was then reflected in the poetry. You know, I think we needed a period of sort of a grief and mourning that of course is, is ongoing, right. As we saw this past summer and lest we forget that that is happening every day, just because names aren't being sort of, uh, launched into the media landscape. It doesn't mean that sort of, uh, black people and and, and native people in particular aren't being killed by, um, by police on a daily basis. And so what I wanted to do in this book was really hold, right? Hold the the need to bear witness to that terror with the need that exists right alongside it to celebrate, right? As Clifton says that every day something has tried to kill me and has failed, right? Mm-hmm. We have to celebrate that that persistence, that survival, that meditative tenacity in the face of unthinkable odds. So That's a lot of what I'm after in the book as well.
0: This poem has a lot of religious imagery, like the the kind of anointing oil. Um, (laughs) Would you feel comfortable talking a bit about what your relationship to religion or or spirituality is like today and kind of how that's evolved over time?
1: Ooh, I thought, okay. I thought you were going to give me a kind of way out at the end. Yeah, I mean, what is it like now? I guess complex as it's it's ever been, you know. As someone who was raised in the church, and I mean, I mentioned a bit earlier that you know, I was in training to become a minister uh, when I had first started grad school, and just had this tremendous uh, crisis of faith, you know. Specifically, actually, from reading Deleuze, believe it or not, <laughs> reading wow. Deleuze, yeah, reading Deleuze on Nietzsche in, in particular. Uh, in this class, I was taking on the dialectic, and I I just had a I had this moment where I realized I couldn't do my trial sermon anymore because hmm. I just didn't believe in it in the same way. And I, I felt like I would be lying, and I didn't. And it's weird that I'm, in some ways, I guess, that I'm describing it as a faith crisis because I clearly believed enough that I thought there was something particularly egregious about lying from a pulpit. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> right? sure. Like I, I, knew I certainly still believed in the ceremony, and that there was something holy about it, even if perhaps my theology had shifted, uh, my theology and my cosmology had shifted. Um, but I think, in no small part, through reading people like Alfred North Whitehead and thinking about the Christianity of people like, uh, you know, Harriet Tubman, right, for example, and, and Frederick Douglass and others, it's it's been helpful for me to to come to a sense of religion. As a way to approach a human experience of astonishment, right? That I have not let go of. And I'm really happy that I was able to keep that part. (laughs) Because I think that part was actually quite suppressed um, when I was younger. And now I think it actually represents such a great deal of my spiritual practice today. You know, it's really trying to spend time listening to the trees, for instance, and thinking about the animals. And what kind of spirit is poured out on them, for instance, right? And just I have a such a different relationship to to biblical texts I grew up with, but also various other sort of religious and spiritual practices that I didn't grow up with. I think a particular reading about sort of process theology and process philosophy really helped me with that. And even to have a vision of the divine is not necessarily knowing the future. That was quite liberating for me. The idea that, you know, the future was unknowable. And so we're Deeply uh, responsible for, and it's something we're co-creating together. Perhaps even with a, a being uh, that that we can't quite see. So that's so
0: that's funny that you mentioned. Yeah. Uh, oh, sorry, I, I think no, please, go ahead, ahead go ahead. Um, that's so funny that you mentioned process theology because for me, discovering process theology in college was kind of what allowed me to keep going to church. <laughs>
1: yeah, right. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> the same. Same, and I was in grad school at the time, you know, so I would spend time at Riverside Church, and mm. it was just, it was very helpful because I feel like reading, you know, Cobb and, and Hartshorn. I mean, it just, it just gave me another way into the materials that were quite familiar to me, but with this other very robust language that uh, I never mm. encountered before, I never imagined, and I think ending up. In that way, it was so interesting to end up at Harvard in the Society of Fellows, right? Because Whitehead had been so instrumental in starting it. (laughs) Um, And so to think about the fact that he'd also helped engineer this other space really where I wrote Ode, you know? And um, the idea that I could keep those aspects of my tradition, that maybe I could even come to something like an abolitionist theology. I mean, that that too was just very helpful for me. It, It helped free me. And the idea that my belief itself could constantly be in process and open and evolving and didn't have to be a cudgel or something, that felt like a new idea too, you know that it could be something that was expanding and, and constantly in the works.
0: I think there's sort of maybe like an inevitable moment in everybody's life, if you grow up in the church, where the version of the religion that has been taught to you as the sort of kid's version doesn't fit anymore. And that becomes a a moment where you either have to figure out a different way of being religious, or you have to kind of leave. Is that kind of part of what you're describing there?
1: Yeah, in some sense. And I think too, I mean, as someone who doesn't really go to church all that often anymore, I can't, it's hard for me to explain in language just how indispensable that aspect of my tradition has been, for my thinking, for my peace. Um, and it's it's given me, I think, a real sense of understanding of how important religion is in a global sense. like anyone who just sort of thinks religion is ridiculous on his face and has no place in a modern society. I mean, it's just not clear to me how seriously, you're thinking about the world we live in <laughs> mm-hmm. and the fact that most people on the planet, right, adhere to, to some sort of religious belief. I mean, you have to contend with it. And I think the the idea that I could keep contending with it, right, and that maybe that wasn't sinful or evil for me to contend with it, that felt like a real revelation, right, that even if I was uh, sort of walking away, right, to quote Fred Moten, like I could run from it and still be in it. And I thought that was so beautiful too, that I could maintain things like a certain orientation towards mercy, right, mm-hmm. or justice, um, and knowing that that was rooted in a certain set of Christian ethics, and being able to describe it that way. So I'm an abolitionist, for instance, and I I don't know how I would have come to that position. The same, and I'm sure I mean people do, right? People do come to an abolitionist position that are Christians, right? But I had such a robust language for mercy from a young age that was rooted in the church, right? The idea that everyone had value and it was inherent. It had nothing to do with your racial identity or how much money you had or what language you spoke, right? You had an intrinsic value that could not be taken away and you were not disposable. That is the core of my abolitionist politics. Some of it too is having an older brother that was incarcerated, right? From the time I was small, but... A lot of it too was this idea that when I started teaching, it was in prisons and a number of my students did not say they were innocent, right? They said that they had killed people, for instance, right? And these were, you know, kids. These were 14 and 15 year old boys. Um, And I had to make a decision right then. Well, okay, like do folks that have committed those kinds of acts deserve an education? And my answer was, of course, of course they do. (laughs) Like who... Even in wrestling with that question, I had to think, what kind of moral authority do I have to even <laughs> wrestle with this, you know, the the way I was in that moment. And so, yeah, all all of that for me though comes back to being trained in a certain set of spiritual practices and, and to take it seriously.
0: And certainly a lot a lot of the people who were centrally involved in the, the sort of first abolitionist movement were motivated by a profound understanding Absolutely. of Christianity.
1: Absolutely. Yeah.
0: Um, do you want to read Ode to Long John's?
1: Yeah. and Thank you, by the way. This has been a fantastic conversation.
0: Thank you for being on the show. This has been great. Yeah.
1: Yeah. So this is a poem about pajamas. It's about my dad. <laughs> Ode to Long John's. I remember thinking, these are like skin for my skin. And a truer thing to call black to boot. As my first pair were blacker even than my nascent curls which turned brown whenever they would wrestle the light. My father called you thermals, which always brought to mind radioactive weapons of one kind or another, two nuclear physicists using casual shorthand over coffee. For ten years, under thrift store denim and corduroys rubbed raw by Miss Blint's blue carpet, I rocked your soft scales with minimal fuss only twice or so grumbling to pop about how you make me appear, if not heavier per se than just, well, stuck in all of my clothes, that this is on the whole untenable for a boy my age, no small tragedy, given these were formative years, you see, critical even, as it pertained to the glowing affirmative sense of my body I would need for success in the general public situation. Pop's concern remained with the cold, and I remained a boy cocooned, fed up, hungry for better methods of breaking winter's callous rule. Anything other than having to leave the oven door open, setting my mother's best four black pots to boil at once. Our entire family gathered as if shrapnel in the living room. So close our bodies grew almost indeterminate there, huddled like stars, under blankets to thaw.
0: Thanks. That's great. Yeah, I really uh, like this poem a lot. And and I, I lived in New England for five years, so I I know Long John's. <laughs> and wow. uh, it, they're, they're a necessary, uh, I, I you know, New York gets plenty cold, but it's nothing like Boston. Um, yeah. And, and yeah. I actually, I worked at a middle school in Providence one year. And uh, one of the students I was working with, would never go to school when it was cold. And one day I sort of like sat her down and was like, why don't you come to school when it's cold? And she said, because my coat makes me look fat. So wow. <laughs> she just like, it's not that she didn't, you know, I sort of thought she maybe didn't have a winter coat, but no, she did, but she just wouldn't wear it. Yeah. Um, why was I that so, why was it so important to you to be kind of as a, as a, as a kid to be seen a certain way and, and to be seen as somebody who sort of had command of, of your body in that way?
1: Uh, because you would get roasted, you know, otherwise <laughs> you keep come to school, with, you know, with clothes you clearly got off the, the clearance rack. And, you know, I had one pair of sneakers. They were gray Timberland sneakers. And I still remember making the argument, you know, but they're Timberlands. And, you know, my, my colleagues, you know, at the time in seventh grade would say, but they're not Timberland boots, right? They're Tim- Timberland doesn't even make sneakers. They're fake. They're fake Timberlands. And it it was the whole thing, you know, that I didn't have shoes and I didn't have clothes and we didn't have money. And it was a, you know, it was a tremendous uh, weight (laughs) that I I carried around as a younger person that I I wasn't fresh. I wasn't hip. And then once it was wintertime, you know, I was quite sickly as a child. And so my parents always made sure that I had uh, long johns on under my clothes. So in addition to the clothes not being stylish, I looked bulked up. In the winter, you know, I I looked quite ridiculous, and so the poems, in part, about that, but it's also just about um, the forms of intimacy that are created, right, in the face of material lack, like that. Because we lived in a house, but we couldn't turn the heat on, right? It was just too mom was like too expensive for us to turn the heat on, so we have to turn on the oven and open the door, or you have to boil water, or you have to sleep with four blankets on. Right. I mean, it wasn't until I met my wife. I mean, she's the person that got me out of sleeping with four blankets. Right. And I mean, I imagine this is surprising to people who are like, how is that possible? You have, you know, you were at Princeton and then Harvard and you're sleeping under four. Like, yeah, absolutely. Cause that was my practice. Right. It was that when I'm tired, I'm going to put these four blankets on, you know, way before weighted blankets were in vogue, you know, in a certain kind of way. I, I had the original weighted blanket, which was you put a bunch of them on top of yourself and you go to sleep. So, That's part of what I'm trying to keep track of in the poem, right? How even in the absence of having a bunch of money, uh, my family made an argument for, I don't know, this other form of proximity that that I really came to appreciate over time, you know, that we were huddled together under blankets or that I had a bed of my own and blankets and that we could afford long johns and um, that we had an oven. You know, I, I try to not to forget that, you know, Um, that, that, those are my conditions of emergence. And when I say, I try not to forget it, I don't just mean in my daily life, but I mean, as a writer uh, that I always need to return to that space and to talk seriously as best I can
0: about class. Yeah. Cause that is a, that's a very definite, you know, specific kind of class position, right?
1: Uh, not being able to turn heat on. Yeah, for sure.
0: (laughs) But not being able to turn heat on, but being able to, you know, afford to, to, to be able to have you know, four blankets and, and warm clothes yeah. and long johns and, you know, that, that, yeah, could be better. could be worse. It's like a, that's a, that's a very specific place to be.
1: Yeah. And at the same time though, it shows you the kind of, um, the flux, right. Of not having money <laughs> as it were. Right. Cause the blankets weren't expensive. They weren't like bed, bath and beyond blanket. Right. Um, but we still had beds, right? And we had our own rooms and we had a house in no small part because my father was a veteran, right? Because he fought in the Vietnam War. So we got this fantastic rate on our house, which wasn't super expensive because of the neighborhood it was in, right? Um, and my mom's an accountant. She saved up a bunch of money when she finished you know, college and, and had me and my sister and you know, she bought that house. I mean, she told me how much she bought the house for. It boggled my mind, not just because of how much the housing market has changed, but even then, you know, as young kids, they were able to make that kind of investment for their family. Nonetheless, with these kind of rules built in, like uh, I'm from New York, so Con Edison supplies the power. And I'll never forget this. And I, whenever I would leave lights on, my mother would say, Con Edison is not your friend. Like, they're. <laughs> These people have a predatory relationship to us, you know, that is parasitic and ongoing. So turn the lights off and um, that, that stuff sticks with you. I don't know that you shake it just by becoming a professor or a scientist or, you know, a gifted playwright. I, I think those kind of choreographies, they're, they're in your body. That's muscle memory. Mm-hmm.
0: Could you talk a bit about your dad? I mean, you mentioned that he was a veteran and he's, he's, in, the, he's in the poem, but what kind of dad was he?
1: This is incredible. Uh, I mean, I I start off another poem in the book this way, but uh, by saying, "I I am now at the age where my father calls me brother when we say goodbye." Right, and I think one of the great revelations of the past couple years, you know, now that I've entered my thirties, is that my father really does seem to regard me that way, right? As a as a black man that's lived long enough that he can regard me, you know, as his kin in a very different sense, right? as someone who's seen some things and lived through some things, he was incredibly tender. You know, he um, worked for forty years at the post office as a mail handler, ten hours a day, worked the night shift, uh, which, for those of you who don't know, you know, is absolutely devastating on the human body, right? To work a night shift, and uh, he ran a Bible study at work um, that had you know participants that were both deaf and hearing people, and uh, what else? Didn't like playing sports that much but we always watch sports together. I mean, I think my love of boxing and basketball comes from my dad because we just watched it together. And we watched the Jets together, you know, on Sundays and he bathed me and uh, you know, he taught me how to take care of myself, how to brush my teeth and put on cocoa butter and he always would talk to me about the family name and that part of what I was doing by comporting myself well in public was that I was holding up our family name. And I just that, that'll never leave me, you know, because my, my son, you know, has, <laughs> has, has that name too. And the idea that that was something to be not just proud of, but that was one of the things that that bound us together and that that was a point of pride, you know, that we belong to each other. I'm immensely thankful that I was raised uh, by a father like that, who also taught me to defend myself. And when that failed, you know, uh, my dad became a teacher's aide at my elementary school because i was getting beat up so much. So in the, the few hours that he had to sleep, he actually was at school with me um to physically defend me from harm, right? Like that that's just who he was, right? And he only went to Vietnam because the recruiter told them they wouldn't take two sons from the same family. Um so he went to try to save my uncle, right? He, he tried to go to die in place of his little brother. So yeah, I mean, that kind of moral courage as a, as a teenager, right? Just having finished your senior year in high school, I think about that often. Um, and that's what he taught me about what it meant to live and die with dignity, is you stand up for people who are smaller than you, for people uh, who can't defend themselves. And you tell the truth as best you can about the life you've lived. Don't be a liar. Um, and weakness is about character. <laughs> right? It's, it's not about how sort of tall or physically strong you are, right? So hone character, be strong and be good.
0: Is, is, is August his first grandchild?
1: No, no. Almost all of my, my brothers and, and sisters have kids, you know? Um,
0: have so. you seen a different side of him as a, I, 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 my, my mom tells me that this is very true of my, my grandmother that, she sees a much different version of her as a grandmother than she uh, saw as a, as a mother.
1: Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, he's over the moon to be a grandpa though. You know, sure. there, there's something, you could just see it when he's with my big sister's kids. I mean, it just absolutely lights up. It's his favorite thing in the world to be around his grandkids. And it makes sense that it didn't always, he had a harder time with us. I mean, in part because I was, I was all over the place. I, mean, I think I'm okay now, but when I was young, I mean, I was just, Kind of confused all the time. I didn't know what was going on. I had a bunch of words in my head. Like, I was reading everything. I wanted to go outside, but it, it wasn't necessarily safe, you know, my parents said. So that, that was something I really struggled with. And I constantly was at war with him around his ostensible authority and i think um he had to i think lean into being a certain kind of disciplinarian with me whereas a uh, grandpa you don't have to be that way like somebody else is responsible for like making sure these kids are all right and fed you get to just pamper them right you get to show up with gifts and just you know make kind of funny voices and things like that and <laughs> my dad has totally embraced that you know um and i'm really excited for august you know my wife and i just got vaccinated so uh, thankfully you know we're so thankful for that it's it's a blessing so we're excited to to go to new york and and be able to see the whole family now you know that that they're all vaccinated as well and that'll be you know another chapter added you know the youngest the youngest grandchild um finally getting to see you know new york city where almost my entire family still lives you know that's that's our home or one of them I guess boston's home now in a different way because my wife's from here so Mm-hmm. We're the Massachusetts Bennett. That's our, uh, our <laughs>
0: um, well, Joshua, I've already taken up so much of your time, but, uh, before we go, do you want to give our listeners a sense of, um, some of the other projects that you have, uh, uh, coming up or that you're working on now?
1: Sure. Uh, so I'm working on the Norton library edition of narrative of the life of Frederick Douglass. So I'm writing, oh the my gosh, wow. For that. So that should be out later this year. Um, and then next year, Yeah, I have a book, uh, The Spoken Word, uh, I'm sorry, Spoken Word, A Cultural History, I'm tired, that's coming out with Knopf, and then The Study of Human Life, which is forthcoming from Penguin Books next year. I have a website, uh, www.drjoshuabennett.com, and I'm on the internet. So it'd be great to hear from you, and and thank you for listening, and thank you, Andrew, for an incredible interview.
0: Thank you. This was so much fun, and and definitely um, let me know when The Spoken Word book comes out. I'd love to have you back on the show. Okay. Signed copy
1: with your name on it.
0: All right. Sounds good, man. All right. Um, Well, uh, I should let you go then, but thanks so much for doing this.
1: Thank you, Andrew. I'll
0: talk to you soon.